Hi, I'm Michael Siddle. And I'm Nick Nanos. And welcome to Trendline. Uh, Nick, I'm sure uh, fall election is not in the top 10 list of exciting things for Canadians to do, but uh, what's an election like for a pollster such as yourself? Oh, man, it's, uh, I should say, is it exciting? Yes. Is it enjoyable? Maybe. But, uh, <laughs> you know, think of it this way. I remember one time I was driving, uh, as you know, Michael, I have four boys. Hmm. One time uh, taking them to school when they were quite young, like grade three, four, that, that, that primary grades. And I remember I was taking them to school on election day as part of my normalization, try to be normal because the polling was all done. And I remember one of the sons going, uh, dad, are you okay? He was like, yeah, yeah, I'm fine. Why? And they go, you just seem a little different today. I said, well, today is election day. And for me, it's when daddy gets his report card and everyone in the whole country knows whether daddy does a good job or not a good job. <laughs> Oh so I was saying, you know, it's, your dad has a special job, right? When he doesn't do a good job, everybody knows about it and everyone will remind him if he doesn't do a good job. And fortunately for uh, Nanos, for myself and the Nanos team, uh, we haven't been embarrassed. Yes. Any of the federal elections that we've done polling in and uh, we've got a great track record. But yeah, still, you've got it's still stressful. It is stressful. Um, and, and all signs point to potentially a fall election now. Uh, we have a new governor general, so that's that's an early indicator. Tick. Uh, so that ticks that box. Uh, so on this, on this episode, Nick, I want to talk about the challengers to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. I want to go through all the opposition parties, the major ones, and just sort of look at their strengths and weaknesses. And we will assign them all summer homework for, for the fall. Oh, so hold on. So does, does that make this kind of like the political fantasy episode of the podcast, where it's kind of like, uh, let's talk about the people who are not in government and what might happen or exactly. what they do, to do to be in government. Exactly, exactly. Uh, I think it'll be a lot of fun. So we're going to do that first. And then uh, later on in the episode, we will talk about the border, which has been under uh, COVID-19 restrictions for more than a year now. Uh, and there's a bit of a tension between, you know, public health and the economy. So we'll do that uh, later. But first, Nick, the challengers. Let's begin with uh, conservative leader Aaron O'Toole, still a, a relative unknown uh, amongst the, the Canadian public. Um, where does he stand now in terms of uh, popularity and support? Well, you know, the thing is that the conservatives are the other national party that uh, governs and has won elections. So there are very high expectations. The Conservatives are the main challengers, you know, but when you look at the polling right now, there are two things that are quite striking about the, the public opinion polling. First of all, there's like a double digit lead uh, for the Liberals over mm. the Conservatives. And second of all, their leader, Aaron O'Toole, is a little bit of, it continues to be a bit of a work in progress where a significant proportion of Canadians don't have a formed opinion uh, of Aaron O'Toole. So this election is going to be critical for him. And he's got a, he's got a, kind of unite the tribe he's got to build his brand he's got to do a lot of things but where they where the conservatives stand right now they've got to start moving those numbers up because they've got to break 30. if they don't break 30 then we're talking about a liberal win and uh, right now whether it's the nanos numbers or the numbers from any of the other major pollsters they all point to the conservatives being noticeably behind the liberals Hmm. So uh, you, you say unite the tribe. I, I believe you're speaking of uh, Alberta, especially. Um, so Aaron O'Toole was at the Calgary Stampede this week uh, campaigning. Uh, he's actually, you know, Montreal born, raised in Ontario. 
Um, how how is he doing so far in Alberta, and what's the challenge there for for getting Alberta to support him? Well, you know, the Prairie Provinces and specifically Alberta are ground zero for the conservative movement in Canada, and and have been for generations. So it's interesting that he's decided to go out to uh, Alberta, and it speaks to the fact that he's been he's been dealing since he's been the leader. He's been dealing with some controversy. When he won the leadership, uh, many individuals that supported him. Uh, like the fact that he uh, had very strong, what I'll say, conservative credentials, uh, and really appealed to individuals on the on kind of say the writer side of the spectrum within the party. But what we saw after he won the uh, won the leadership was that uh, a more pragmatic, I'll say, Aaron O'Toole, looking to build a winning coalition to to defeat the Liberals. And as a result, there have been grumblings within the party and within the party leadership and within the caucus which is very Alberta heavy and very Western centric. So for Aaron O'Toole, it looks like what he's trying to do is to make sure that conservatives are united under his banner behind him and his vision for the country so that he can challenge the liberals. So he's got to get that housekeeping in order first before he can start to challenge Justin Trudeau as an alternative and as a government in waiting. Hmm. Now, under under Stephen Harper, uh, you know, uh, the, the election strategy always seemed to be, uh, as you say, get Alberta behind you. And and you can get a lot of the prairies, some of the East Coast. Um, you may not necessarily need a lot of votes in places like uh, Toronto. It, it, in a sense, have they sort of painted themselves into a corner strategy wise? Uh, I, I mean, is, is this is this a, a still a good strategy for them? Well, the, for the for the conservatives, their path to victory is still the province of Ontario. If if uh, if Aaron O'Toole, who is from the 905, if you know suburban Ontario, if he doesn't have traction in Ontario, it's hard to see a scenario where the Conservatives uh, can defeat the Liberals. So they've got to make sure that the West is uh, firmly behind Aaron O'Toole and the Conservatives, and then they have to really wage war on the ground uh, in Ontario in order to pick up support. And then beyond that, the rest is gravy. If they pick up any more seats in Quebec, it's gravy. If they pick up a couple seats in Atlantic Canada, it's gravy, even in British Columbia. But for the Conservatives, the real the real game for the Conservatives is in the Conservative heartland in the prairies to make sure they continue that support. And at the same time, pick up seats in those key swing battlegrounds in the 905 belt in suburban Ontario. Hmm. Now let's uh, give Mr. O'Toole some summer homework for uh, ahead of a potential fall election. Uh, what 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 should we assign him? I think his homework should be to share his vision for the future and to rally conservatives behind that vision in order to be united and to challenge the liberals. Hmm. All right, Nick. Uh, let's move on to NDP leader Jagmeet Singh. Um, how's his uh, personal brand? His his uh, personal brand, let's call it. His personal brand is pretty strong, actually comparable to the prime minister on a, on a lot of measures. Canadians generally have positive impressions of, uh, of Jagmeet Singh. And, you know, even when we look at the broader brand of the, of the New Democrats, it's actually, which when you factor people that are voting NDP, that would be open to voting NDP, people who like or dislike Jagmeet Singh and evaluate the leader, when you roll up the whole brand of leader and party, the, the New Democrats actually come out ahead of the Conservatives. They're still trailing the... Uh, trailing the liberals, but it, it speaks to goodwill. I think maybe that's the best way to describe it. There's goodwill for Jagmeet Singh as an individual. I think people generally like him, but uh, if we can put a little asterisk behind that, 
Remember Ed Broadbent? Are you old enough to remember Ed Broadbent? I Michael? do. I do remember Ed Broadbent. There you go. Ed yeah. Broadbent, the member from Oshawa. Mm -hmm. As many people coined him the best prime minister that we never, ever had. He was more popular than, he was the most popular federal party leader, but Canadians didn't flock to him as a government. So positive goodwill for Jagmeet Singh, but converting that into votes is still going to be quite difficult. Mm -hmm. Now, under the, the late uh, Jack Layden, uh, his party in, in the Orange Crush had a lot of success in Quebec. Uh, Jagmeet sort of lost that support to the bloc in the last election. Um, is Quebec still crucial for him or, or what should his strategy be going forward? Well, his, stra his strategy going forward realistically would be to hold on to the seats that he has, build support in uh, British Columbia, and also to target seats in Ontario. In our internal polling or the polling that Nanos does, on the ballot numbers in the province of Quebec, it's still a tough slog for the for the New Democrats. They're they're dealt a, a significant setback hmm. um, in the last election, and they've never really recovered in the province of Quebec. So for the NDP, maybe it's maybe it's just focus on Ontario, try to pick up some more seats in British Columbia, and then to to target a couple ridings outside of that. All right. So what's uh, Jagmeet Singh's summer homework? Jagmeet Singh's summer homework is to capture that old style NDP magic from Jack Layton and Tom Mulcair, because it won't take a lot for voters that might currently be parking with the Liberals, if they don't think that the Conservatives are going to win the election, to swing over to the NDP. Maybe the NDP can benefit from reverse strategic voting. Last time, they were on the receiving end of people voting Liberal to block the Conservatives. If the Conservatives don't do well, that gives license to NDP and progressive uh, liberal and progressive voters to vote NDP to see a good showing and to perhaps be a little bit of a check on the liberal government if the liberals only win another minority government. Hmm. Uh, all right. Now we have a new leader on the scene, Green Party leader Anami Paul. Uh, you know, we keep seeing these uh, reports of infighting within the party. It's almost like she's being hamstrung uh, within her own organization. Um, how, how's it looking for her and how, how does this sort of bad publicity affect her support? Well, it's been a tough uh, number of weeks for Enemy Paul. Uh, I think for uh, for her, there's the enthusiasm of, uh, of winning the leadership. Also, uh, doing relatively well in the by-election. She did not win the by-election, uh, but the fact of the matter is that she still performed exceptionally well considering the short uh, runway that she had to mount a campaign in, uh, in the riding in uh, Toronto Centre. But since then, what it looks like is that there have been some dissatisfied individuals, especially on the council, the Green Leadership Council. Uh, and this relates to policies related to the state of Israel and Palestine, and also some comments that uh, Anne Paul made regarding her being a, a target of, uh, of individuals within the party. And as a result, uh, although I think people were generally intrigued uh, it's it's kind of for the Green Party, what an election that really could have been a moment in time for them because the Green Party movement globally is doing quite well. It's doing quite well in Germany. It's doing quite well in France. Now they've just elected now in Canada with Annemie Paul. They have a new leader. She's a new thing on the political menu. And I think for Canadians, they would be intrigued. 33 out of every 10 Canadians would consider voting Green. But then all this stuff happens hmm. where... They might try to remove her as leader. They won't give her funds that she believes is necessary. 
to, uh, to mount a campaign in the riding that she wants to run in. The Greens are laying off individuals because of financial difficulties. So they've taken a lot of that goodwill and basically, I don't know why I say, chucked it out the window. It's gone out the window, that's for sure. Mm. And I think it's uh, diminished the enthusiasm that some Canadians had about potentially voting Green in this election. So what's uh, Enemy Paul's summer homework? I think Enemy Paul's summer homework is to quell dissent within her party and specifically the, the council, and then to go out and do a good job. The best thing that Enemy Paul can do is to get out in the public domain, perform well, share her vision for the future, and, and to be a credible alternative to the New Democrats and also the conservative and also the liberals. Hmm. And her performance would be the best response. A, a solid performance nationally would be the best response to anyone that is unhappy with her leadership. Uh, Nick, let's not forget about the Bloc Québécois, of course. Um, under Yves-Francois Blanchet, they've done very well in Quebec, uh, taking votes away from the NDP in the last election. Um, what's the situation in Quebec like for them right now? Well, the, the Bloc is actually down from where they were in the last federal election. There's still a solid second in the province of Quebec, which is good news for Blanchet and, uh, and his party. But uh, the Liberals have been doing well. And for all intents and purposes, the Liberals have been eating the Bloc lunch, mm. so to speak, right? They uh, publicly talked about supporting the, the provincial initiative to recognize Quebec as a nation within the constitution and French as the only official language. They've, they've embraced Quebec's child daycare program. So, and they've been big government, which a lot of uh, Bloc voters uh, like, uh, like what I'll say, big government. And they've been, they've been basically uh, stealing a lot of those planks that naturally would be strengths for the Bloc. So they're, they're a bit on their heels. And the other thing, Michael, that's quite important is that of the 30 odd seats that the Bloc has, according to the Nanos modeling, we model out seat projections every month, that 10 of those Bloc seats are at risk and nine of those 10 Bloc seats are at risk of switching over to the Liberals. Wow. That's why the Liberals, why don't we just say the Liberals want to eat the block breakfast, lunch, and dinner <laughs> to try to win a, win a majority government. So uh, what's uh, Blanchette's summer homework? Blanchette's summer homework has to be to recapture what I'll say the soft nationalist vote and to differentiate himself from the Liberals in order to, to get back some of those block voters that have been looking at the Liberals and have been kind of okay. So he needs to differentiate himself from the Liberals as an alternative and to hopefully have some sort of issue that galvanizes Quebecers in favor of the Bloc Québécois. Great stuff. Thanks very much, Nick. Uh, so we're going to take a quick break now. And when we come back, we'll talk about uh, the border. So, Nick, the border has been closed or restricted, let's say, not fully closed uh, because of COVID-19 for more than a year now. Uh, and now that as, you know, COVID-19 numbers are trending downwards, uh, it seems like the Americans are doing an amazing job vaccinating. We're, we're on track. We're doing a great job. Um, how do Canadians feel about opening the border and, and what's the most uh, important factor for them in that decision? Well, we are a border country. The fact of the matter is, Michael, is that... Uh... 90% of Canadians live within a one hour drive of the US border. 
So we have a fixation on that. It's the one, inter the, the most traveled international border for Canadians. And in a recent survey that we did for CTV News and the Globe and Mail, we asked Canadians about what should be the primary lens or factor that uh, the government should use when it comes to reopening the border. And we, we placed before them a binary choice, right? Two choices, either jobs in the economy or the pandemic. And what's interesting is that eight, almost eight out of every 10 Canadians or 79% said that public health issues should be the primary lens when it comes to making decisions about opening the border. And about 18% or one out of every five said it should be jobs and the economy. So it's still all about the pandemic when it comes to decisions related to opening the Canada-US border. I find that fascinating, Nick. I mean, numbers are trending down, but the, the concern is still about public health. I mean, does this possibly suggest Canadians uh, are worried that if we op reopen too early, that numbers will start trending up again? Well, I think now there's the sense that Canadians are doing a better job than the Americans at uh, vaccinating first vaccinations and second vaccinations. And in the United States, there's such a diversity of situations right across, uh, right across the United States that perhaps Canada will be at risk. But I, I think if you happen to be uh, part of a, a business organization or, a, or an enterprise that relies on an open border and the movement of people, like the trucking industry, the tourist industry, all that kind of stuff, you got to be worried about something like this because, because for those for those corporate interests, you're thinking about jobs in the economy and prosperity, right? Dollars and cents. And then at the same time, if you're a politician, you're looking at these numbers and going, yeah, the economy is important, but the pandemic and public health should not be diminished as a key factor in making decisions. So I think what we might see is a little bit of tension where, you know, Enterprises within Canada want to see a full open border, uh, but at the same time, Canadians will be saying, yes, but we still need to make sure that it makes sense from a public health perspective. On uh, previous Trendline episodes, I think we've also talked about how Canadians feel about the economy, and, and it's generally still uh, quite positive. Am, am I right? Yeah, actually, uh, the, our Bloomberg uh, nanos tracking suggests that Canadian consumer confidence is still uh, is still quite strong, and people ex expect a bit of a rebound in the fall. But you know, there's a very interesting survey, Michael, that we did with uh, PowerPlay when we asked Canadians about uh, what issues would be important if there was an election. And at the top of the list was not the pandemic; actually, it was jobs in the economy hmm. and things like uh, healthcare and the deficit and the environment. The pandemic was actually issue number five. Wow. So I think that's that should be uh, that should be quite striking for anyone thinking about what the next election will be about, because for the liberals to run on the pandemic won't be enough. Canadians want to hear about jobs in the economy and prosperity and what's going to happen next. Uh, Nick, I'm glad you brought it, things back to the economy because uh, sorry about the uh, the liberals in the election, because for the upshot in this episode, I wanted to ask you, what's the upshot for the liberals calling a snap election? Well, if you look at the polls, Michael, you'd think it's a no-brainer, right? Double-digit lead over the Conservatives. Everyone's mm. getting vaccinated. It's sunny outside. Everyone's getting a haircut. I don't. You didn't even say <laughs> I got a haircut. Not me. I miss, I missed the haircut, unfortunately. Yeah. I don't know if a beard trim is in order, but I, know, <laughs> yeah. I can understand about the haircut there, Michael. There you go. You're looking smart. Um, so, uh, but the key takeaway is that these snap elections can be uh, double-edged swords. As soon as 
as soon as the writ is dropped, that's the day that the election is called, it's effectively a reset. So for the liberals, they've got to watch out that, yeah, they start off with a double digit lead, but then there's a technical, we call it the technical correction in the polling industry. That's that, that, that a party is overpriced. And mm. I would hazard to say that the liberals are currently overpriced, that they have an advantage for sure, that they have a lead over the conservatives. It's probably more like six or eight percentage points. It's not like 10, 12 or 14 percentage points. So the, uh, the upshot is, is the liberals should not be too comfortable in calling an election because as soon as the election's called, people will start to look at Aaron O'Toole and Jagmeet Singh and all the other options, Annamie Paul and Blanchet and uh, all those opposition parties that we were talking about earlier in the podcast will start to creep up and close the gap between them and the liberals. No, oh, there you go. And we've given them all summer homework. So watch out. <laughs> um, Nick, thank you very much. And uh, where can we find you? All the stats can be found at www.nanos.co or you could follow me on Twitter at Nick, N-I-K, Nanos. And I'm also on Twitter at Michael Stittle and you can find more about what Nick and I have discussed in this episode also at ctvnews.ca. Uh, thanks everyone for listening and watching. Thank you.